The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. So this week we are kicking off our Curious series. And uh, the way this sermon series works is the sermons are going to be based off of your questions. So we've had people submit questions online. Uh, We've had people submit questions here. Uh, We've also got um, index cards out there again this week. So if you didn't get a chance last week to submit a question uh, or you woke up in the middle of the night with a great one this week, go ahead and turn that in. Uh, We've got a bunch already, but some of them... uh, you know, we may not be able to get to. And basically, if you can think of a better question than someone else already did, we'll bump there. So that's how it'll go. Amen. Uh, but no, we want you to turn them all in because we may even, after the fact, I might try to do some vid- short videos and, and whatever. I, w- I want to try to get answers to all these for everybody because uh, I've asked you to not only uh, turn in questions for things that have maybe uh, caused you to be curious about the Bible and life and the intersection of all that, but also questions that have come out of your interactions with people as you're sharing the gospel. So uh, the Bible says my job is to uh, equip uh, all of you for the work of the ministry. And so if you've got questions coming out of those evangelistic interactions, I want to make sure you've got answers to them as much as we can. So praise God. If you've got questions, turn them in. We'll get to one way or the other. Hallelujah. Um, So I'm I'm excited because this is one of my favorite sermon series anyway, So and, and i tend to stay excited about anything around the Bible anyways. However, we've had some really good questions come in, so I'm excited about this series. Um, But also, there have been some questions come in that I'm not really sure uh, whether they were a joke or not. So one of those questions was, uh, what will our new bodies be like? And it was okay up until then. And then the rest of the question was, and will there be toilets in heaven? This was actually turned in. I did not make this up. Uh, if this is your question, and it's serious, I'm gonna, it, it's a short answer, so I'm going to go ahead and deal with it as if maybe you were serious. Um, but if you were joking, I just want to thank you personally for putting me in the position to discuss bodily excrement in eternity. Uh, so thank you. This, this should be fun. Okay? So uh, what will our new bodies be like, and will there be toilets in heaven? Okay, so just a couple things. First of all, on our new bodies, okay? The Bible does say some about it, not as much as we would probably like. Philippians 3, uh, 21. This is not the whole sermon, by the way. I'm going to deal with this one real quick, and then uh, we're going to move on to something else, okay? Philippians 3, 21 says this. Who, uh, talking about Jesus, says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So both of those verses give us the idea that our glorified, resurrected bodies are going to be to some degree like the body we, we, that Jesus had after his resurrection. Okay, uh, Revelation 21, 4 tells us there will be no more death or pain. Um, in our resurrected, glorious bodies. I am, I am significantly and definitely looking forward to the no pain part. Uh, I, can I get an amen on that? Amen. 
Yes. Okay. So, so what we see from that is that our resurrected bodies, they will be eternal. Okay. They'll be without pain. Hallelujah. If I had a hanky, I'd wave it. And they will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. Okay. We don't get a ton more info than that. Uh, so looking at, at the resurrected body of Christ, that had some, he had some interesting features going on, right? He walked through walls in John 20. So that means that Jesus' resurrected body was not uh, limited in the way ours is, okay? Uh, he was able to do some things that I'm assuming you can't do. If you've figured out how to start walking through walls, come see me afterwards. We're going to monetize that somehow. Um, but, so he walks through walls in John 20. Uh, but Jesus also eats fish in Luke 24. You also remember that Thomas got to touch uh, the wounds. And so we know that Jesus wasn't just, he didn't walk through the wall because he's just a spirit. If he's eating fish and people are touching him, uh, that he also had, his physical body was resurrected. Okay, so uh, it's, it's very, there's, it's actually very problematic to believe Jesus only rised, rised, only rose spiritually. I could have made that work if I thought about it a minute, but we'll just move on. So, uh, Jesus did, did have a resurrected body, and it was, it was different than the one he had before, okay? He's, uh, he's just, you know, popping into rooms and stuff uh, when the door was locked, and so that, that obviously is different. So, um, he eats fish in Luke 24. The Bible talks about a wedding feast in heaven where we celebrate our eternal redemption. So, it seems... We will eat, uh, potentially, in, in the glorified state with our new bodies. Now, the Bible does not go into details of how a glorified gastrointestinal tract works. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So, I could see, just now I'm not in the conjecture, let me just say that. I could see it possibly being perfectly efficient and absorbing all of what we eat as to Eliminate the need for elimination, right? So that's possible, maybe. However, to your point and to your question, if this is not the case, based on what I do know about heaven from the scriptures, if there are toilets, they will likely be carved out of a single large pearl or something rad like that, and the seat will probably never be cold, okay? So (laughs) that's what I can give you from the Bible about that. All right? That's all I got. So if, if your question was serious, I, I think I've dealt with it faithfully. If you were joking and just wanted to put me in that position, ha, ha, ha. All right? Either way, it's fine. Uh, I asked for your question, so really whose fault is this, right? Yep, it's mine. Okay, let's turn our attention to the scriptures and see if I can clean up the mess I just made, okay? Did, did you turn to Hebrews 1? That's where we're at. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. And uh, this will be the place we launch from tonight. All right? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
Praise God for his word. I'm going to condense tonight's question into a heading, just for the sake of condensing, and then I'm going to kind of bust it out to some parts for you. Okay, so the heading is, how do we reconcile the Old and New Testament? How do we reconcile the Old and New Testament? And uh, it's important that we uh, keep Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, basically as, as lenses. Think of it like glasses that we're going to wear. This, this tells us that Jesus is, what does it say? He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Okay, so some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, may, there's no way to make any sense of it if we don't have Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection as the lens with which we use to view it. Because we've learned the most we could possibly ever learn about God, what he does, how he operates through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Okay? So we want to use the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and all of that teaches us to help us interpret what it is we're going to work through tonight. That's why we started there. It doesn't directly answer the question, but it gives us guide rails and lenses with which to read and understand what we're going to go through. So, uh, the specific questions asked were along two basic lines, okay? Um, and this, this came from several different people, and I've, I've kind of brought it down into, into two major thoughts, okay? First, as Christians, what are we supposed to do with the commands of the Old Testament? Right? You've got the 613 laws, you've got the festivals, you've got the Sabbath, the dietary restrictions, all of that. As Christians, what do we do with that? What do we do with what is kind of all widely known as the Old Testament law? The second thing is, second line of questioning is, how do we understand and explain the seeming contrast between God in the Old Testament and in the New? Okay, Specifically, Examples like God commanding the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 and the Canaanites in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2, 3, and 20, um, down to the specificity of not just the men, the women, the children, wipe them all out, the livestock, leave nothing breathing. This is the verbiage that's used. So how do we, how do we reconcile our, what Hebrews says that Jesus is the expressed radiant image of God, how, how, that, that all that Jesus taught is that's what God thinks about stuff with this Old Testament picture where God does some stuff that's hard to understand and hard to explain. Okay, so that's what we're going to work on. Remember, let's keep Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in mind. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has to be the lenses we use to look at all of this, because we learn the most about God that we're ever going to learn through Christ's life, teaching, and his death, substitutionary in our place for our sins, and his resurrection, okay? Uh, so as it pertains to Christians in the Old Testament law, uh, the book of Galatians focuses very much on this, so if this is something you've thought about, the book of Galatians, I would just commit to you as a whole, it's not very long, uh, would really help you to begin to sort this out. I'm going to read you Galatians 3, 23 through 25. Uh, as kind of a launching point for talking about this. So that says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Did you hear that? So 
The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What does that mean? Well, the the harmony of the scriptures teaches that we tend to be a rebellious, stiff-necked, prideful people. That wasn't just about Israel. That was about you. Good. Say, that's about me. That's good. That's good for you to say and understand about yourself. Okay? So part of what the law was to do was to show us, and, 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 you know, the, the, the older I get, and I know some of you in here are like, yeah, whatever, whippersnapper, but the older I get, the more I, I understand that I even, I have a tendency to see things a certain way and, and, and understand struggles a certain way, and, and, and the reality is there's a wide spectrum of the ways that Satan tries to get people away from God. For some people, uh, he does it through pride, which I think is part of what's being talked about here. There are people that literally would think they are good enough to please God, that, that God what absolutely should throw open the gates of heaven and roll out a red carpet for them because they're pretty darn righteous. Like They really could be deluded enough into thinking they've earned the right to be with God for eternity. Uh, and that will get you, that'll, that'll get you far away from God in, in, in as quick as anything. On the other end, there's, there's those that uh, Satan convinces God would never have anything to do with because they're so wretched and so dirty and so useless. And, uh, you know, those of you that care about being effective ministers of the gospel in your life. Just, just remember, the, the way you struggle, you're, you're probably somewhere on that spectrum. You're either more prone to think more highly of yourself than you ought, or you're more prone to think uh, thoughts that are not true about how God really thinks about you based on what lies you tend to believe. And that can be different in different seasons of your life, but we tend to project that on other people and then try to minister out of that. Understand, there's a wide variety and range of where people are at, and you need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern that when you're dealing with somebody. Uh, And I'm only saying that because I know I'm talking to a church that really cares about being effective gospel ministers wherever they are, right? So amen for that. Amen. Uh, So the the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ, to teach us what is the deal with the 613 laws and all of the specifics. And Well, the whole point here, according to Galatians, is that was a tutor and it, had a, it was a teacher that was commissioned to teach you one lesson. You need grace because you can't keep all these, right? The book of James says the law all goes together in one package. You violate one piece of it, you violated the whole thing. And so the law was a tutor, a teacher with one lesson, came in and wrote it on the blackboard every single day. You are a sinner in need of grace. Underline. That's it. That's, that was the law's job, okay? So... It was to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith because Spurgeon said it, others have said it, there's no way to truly receive the grace of God without a realization of your spiritual bankruptcy. If you don't really believe you need grace, you can't receive it. If you think that uh, I'm a pretty good person and I know a lot of people worse than me, so surely God's happy with me, you've not understood how the Bible describes the human condition. Okay, the Bible's not about us, it's about God, but it does talk about us. And it does say where we're at. And, and where we're at without Jesus is in serious trouble. And the law is meant to teach us that. But that puts us in a place, a humble place of being able to be justified by faith, to reach out for grace by faith. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law then has done its job. So, what does that mean? Do we as followers of Jesus have to obey the Old Testament law? Some of you are excited for this one. The answer is no and yes. 
You kind of saw that coming, didn't you? And I'm kind of joking, kind of. Christians are often accused, I don't know if you know this, we're often accused of cherry-picking what parts of the Old Testament law we follow. There are those that level that accusation at us, right? Because we tend to like the Ten Commandments uh, and think that those should be followed, but we also like bacon-wrapped scallops, right? Now, for for those of you who have not dove deeply into the 613 laws and know all the dietary restrictions, right? Uh, pork and shellfish was, off, shellfish was off the menu, according to Old Testament law. So that's why that joke was funny. So if you didn't get a chance to laugh before, now's your shot. All right, good. Because that was funny. Right, so, but, but that's, people's, that's what they'll say. They'll say, well, you, you want to keep the Ten Commandments and try to make me follow the Ten Commandments, but you're eating bacon and you're eating shrimp and you're shaving your face and all that type of stuff, and you're wearing polyester cotton blend, right? So, I, you know, we've all heard that. So <clears throat> here's, here's the deal with that. Let's, let's talk about the law and get, get some understanding around that. First of all, something that's important to understand is that uh, though the law is, is all one package, there, there were different laws that had different functions and purposes, okay? And we need to really remember that, that the time frame that we're dealing with is God dealing with Israel specifically as a people called out in a time, in a place, for a purpose, and, and that's part of what's going on here. So there's, there's so some would chop it up even farther than this, but there's, there's basically three uh, sections of the law or different... Um, different headings under which these laws would go, okay? So you've got the moral law, which like the Ten Commandments would fall under that. And I would say that the moral law reveals God's character and desire, the way he conducts himself, but also the way he desires for us to conduct ourselves. That's the moral law. So think Ten Commandments maybe when you think that. Uh, Secondly would be uh, the civil law, okay? So there was a bunch of those 613 commandments that had to do with the fact that God was actually the king of Israel for a time. They had a theocracy. They had no leader but God. And so he gave them ordinances and and basically a a governmental structure, and some of those laws dictated how it worked with God as their direct king. Uh, The rest uh, that didn't fit into those two would be ceremonial laws, and those are the ones that had to do very specifically with the garments of the priests and the way sacrifices were done, the specifics about that, washings and all, all of the deal. And uh, so you had, you had moral, civil, ceremonial. Now, thinking about the ceremonial laws, and, and, and I'll, I'll lump in, maybe they don't go there perfectly, but I'll lump in like the, the festivals and different things that were commanded. I'll, I'm going to put that in with the ceremonial law because I think ultimately their purpose was very uh, close together. So the ceremonial law having to do with the sacrifices, which what was the point of the sacrifices, Right. God gave them the law, said, do this, don't do this, with full recognition right off the bat that they were not going to be able to follow that. So what did he give them alongside of the law? He gave them the sacrificial system, which was atonement, which that's when they were, they were killing goats and, and sheep and bulls. And we know that ultimately the blood of animals could never really atone for sin. That was a foreshadowing. It was a placeholder pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice and atonement of Christ who was coming Amen. So what was happening, so that you get the ceremonial laws and you got all the festivals. The, you, get, you, get the, uh, you get the Passover and, and uh, the, the Feast of Booths and all of the rest, right? These things were all 
reminding uh, Israel of something God had done in, in their redemptive history or pointing them forward or sometimes doing both uh, to the coming redemption in Christ. And so uh, the ceremonial law and the, and the, and the, fe- and the festivals and all of that, it's, it's very easy then to understand when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. There's no more need for any of the ceremonial laws. There's no more need uh, to know how to sacrifice bulls and goats properly or what kind of animal is acceptable or when you should do that or how you should do it because those are no longer needed. The final atoning sacrifice happened when the king of glory, the lamb of God, allowed himself to be killed by his own creation to atone for the sins of the world. All right, so Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. The civil law, those pieces of it, don't make a lot of sense, right? Because Israel started clamoring, we want a king like all the other nations around us. And so uh, when, when God was no longer directly uh, their king, m- many of those things then uh, now fall under the, the commands we have in Romans and other places that says we should submit to the authorities and the governments that God establishes. So why do we get to keep the moral law, right? That's everybody's problem. We, we want to keep the Ten Commandments, and we think that Christians should walk in those and keep those. Uh, part of why that's the case is because we believe that if commands are explicitly repeated or even alluded to in the New Testament in principle, so you've got an Old Testament command that is repeated in the New Testament in either the teachings of Christ or his apostles, then that shows us that, that that has translated over. That's a part of that moral law that is born out of the character of God, which is unchanging and immutable and uh, is, is still part of how God wants us to relate to him. Nine of the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the famous ten, right? The stone tablet ten, that's what I'm talking about. Nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. The only one you don't see repeated explicitly is, is the Sabbath commandment, okay? But here's what the Bible does say about the Sabbath uh, in the New Testament. It says in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul declares... Uh, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Uh, Along the same line of thought, you have Romans 14.5. It says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So these scriptures both together, they make it clear that For the Christian, Sabbath-keeping is a matter of spiritual freedom and not a command from God. Okay? Now, just because that's true doesn't mean we shouldn't put weight on it. And I would would just submit to you that I believe the Sabbath is woven into the seven-day creative order. It was there from the beginning, and I think we should observe a day of rest and worship. Um, but when we get in trouble is when people start arguing about what day of the week is that and, and getting real legalistic about that. Is it Saturday because that was the Jewish Sabbath or what, la, 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 right? And everybody's arguing about stuff that obviously, according to Colossians and Romans, the teachings of Jesus is not the point. <clears throat> uh, I'm hoping that every day of my life uh, is a day full of worship and honor for the Lord Jesus, but I do think setting a day aside for for, for rest, uh, since he did, that's probably a good idea, because I'm, I'm not as tough as him. So uh, here, here's the reality. When it comes to Christians following the law, what, what do we do with that? What does that look like? Jesus really boiled this thing down a lot simpler than, than some would like to admit. For, for, for some of us, 
we have a tendency to enjoy complicating things. Jesus really did make it simple. And so I'm going to read you Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. This, uh, this is Jesus. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Paul picked this idea up in Romans 13, 8. He said, Oh, no man, anyone, anything but to love him. And if you'll love your neighbors yourself, you'll fulfill the whole law. Here's the thing. As it pertains to what it looks like for us to obey God as followers of Christ, you literally can sum it up with a very small grid of love God and love people. And so when you're faced with a dilemma, a moral dilemma, what do I do here? What do I say here? What we ask ourselves is, would in doing this or saying this or not doing this or not saying this, am I loving God and am I loving people? Jesus said, <clears throat> there's two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is why over and over again, this is emphasized as the top of the heap, right? Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, man, you can... You could have the gift of prophecy. You could have faith so as to walk up to mountains and tell them to move. You could have all that. You could be the man. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. You don't mean anything. You're just hot air, man. What this comes down to, how do, we, how do we boil down those 613 laws? What Jesus came and he condensed it down to two very simple points. And for some of you, this is going to sound too simple. Some of you are like, no, I'd, no, I still want the Ten Commandments. Listen, dear friend, listen to me. Are you saying I don't have to, are you saying Christians don't have to follow the Ten Commandments? Listen, hold on. Take a deep breath. No, I, I am saying they have to follow the Ten Commandments. Would you listen to me? They do have to follow the Ten Commandments. If they love God and love people, they're going to follow the Ten Commandments. You understand what I'm saying? Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what they have. You're going to rejoice with them at their blessings. If you really love your spouse, you're not going to commit adultery on them. If you really love somebody, you're not going to murder them. You're starting to see what I'm talking about? If you really love the Lord your God, you're not going to have false gods before him. You're not going to be worshiping idols. We should rejoice in the simplicity that Jesus brought us in the revelation of these two commandments, summarizing for us the law. Because our, I don't know if, if, if you're feeling real great about your ability on a given day to handle everything coming at you, but I've got enough to think about, and I'm dropping the ball most of the time, and so it's really helpful for me to know this is much simpler than I tend to make it. If I will focus, pray for God's help to, and commit my life to these two simple premises, this, this new commandment that's really an old commandment, to love God and to love people, I won't violate those other ten. I won't violate any of the moral law of God. So do we as Christians follow the law? Yes, but it's, it's, it's different. It's in, in following the way of love that Jesus laid out for us, we end up following the rest of it. And we're not, we're not under, it's, it's not by the law, it's not by following the law that we have any hope of being saved. We're, we're, we fully acknowledge that we're not able to do that. We fully acknowledge that on any given day, we will not perfectly love God and love people in every situation, right? Because you're going to say something dumb. You're going to at least think something dumb. Most of you are going to say something dumb, but you're going to at least think something dumb. We're going to do something dumb. We're going to violate somehow this, this royal law, as James calls it, to love God and to love people. That means putting others 
That means putting God's glory and the good of others above our own in every situation. We're going to need God's help to do that at all, any of the time. And we're going to uh, have to participate in the beautiful gift of repentance when we inevitably fall short of it. But we're going to keep striving for that high bar that we, we fulfill and we follow and we obey the whole law of God when we walk in love. Amen. Amen. I hope that's encouraging to you and helpful. Uh, that's, it, it is for me. So when it, that's, that's, we're going to, there's pr- probably some more that could be said, but that, I, that's good right there. If you take that and, and grab a hold of that and believe that, you'll be able to not only walk out what it, how it is we relate to the Old Testament law as followers of Jesus, but you should be able to explain, uh, at least to some degree, somebody that's wondering, uh, you know, why you're at Red Lobster for uh, unlimited shrimp, right? <laughs> Wearing your polyblend sweater and all that. Okay? Amen. I don't, have you guys met people that are, they're confused? I have a lot of times met people that are confused about, but I see God saying all this stuff in the Old Testament about festivals and whatnot, and should I be doing that, and should I not be doing that? And there, there is, there's a lot of confusion about it. If you haven't been confused about it, somebody you know probably is. And so I hope you heard all that. Uh, and not only maybe does it bring some peace and settling for your own understanding, but that you'll be able to talk to some others about it. Because let me tell you something right now. There's people that have stayed away from Jesus because somebody told them Christians are hypocrites and they cherry pick which, which laws they want to follow. Just go look at Deuteronomy whatever and, and they'll, they'll try to point out some verse and say, Christian, see Christians are doing that all the time. And, and they've got no idea or context of the overall arc of the redemptive history of God, what he's doing with the people of Israel in that time, that there's a specific purpose, that it's, it is different right then for lots of legitimate reasons than it is right now. They don't know how to, they don't know, they don't have the lenses of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. They don't understand that God's character and, and requirements, uh, that, that it is, is better and more fully revealed in Christ. They don't, they don't know how to look. And so we can help them with the power of the Spirit, not to stay away from Jesus over some, some really kind of foolish things, um, objections that can be uh, lovingly and, and logically worked out. Amen? I hope that happens for you and people are helped. Okay, so we're going to transition. We're still talking about the same thing. How do we reconcile Old and New Testament? We're going to move now to the accusation that God commanded his people to commit genocide. I didn't say that earlier, but that's many times the way this is talked about. Um, the accounts in Samuel and also in Deuteronomy, the Amalekites, the Canaanites. Basically, people uh, for the most possible shock value and the basic, I, I guess that they want to make God look as bad as possible, they'll, they'll accuse him of, of genocide and, and pushing his people towards that. Um, that's, that's a really nasty word, and so it elicits a response, as it should. Okay, So first, I want to deal with one thing, if you've studied this, maybe this is one thing you've heard about it. Some say that uh, when, when in the Old Testament God says, leave no living thing breathing, take out the men, the women, the children, everything, that that is basically, it's basically ancient tough talk, right? That it's just, it's kind of hyperbolic exaggeration. And I, I do want to say, and this, some of you maybe have read that explanation and had found it satisfactory. I, I, I do want to say there, there's some compelling evidence, it's fine, 
that's a fine word. There's some compelling evidence that that, that could be the case. Uh, maybe it is, you know, we have sports teams all the time that say to each other, I'm going to obliterate you, right? Or I'm going to decimate your life, right? Or, you know, we, so we, and that happens. Hi- hyperbole happens and exaggeration happens. And, and especially, you know, we're talking about, we're not talking about uh, scoring goals and points, right? We're talking about land conquest and real serious, you know, uh, testosterone-infused stuff. So uh, this is real war. And so there are those that have said that basically God was just, that was, that was kind of an ancient form of exaggeration. Uh, he's, he's saying go and win and win big, but he doesn't mean, I, for me, <clears throat> I, I, find, I find that answer a, a little less than satisfying because of how specific it gets when God is giving these commands. It, it, it seems like he means what he said. And I think even if it's true, even if he was just, that was kind of an exaggerative, like, go get them team, like, statement, I, I think it's really good for us to walk through what if it wasn't that. <laughs> because it's, I, I still think God can clearly be seen here not as a genocidal monster, but as, as a perfect, holy, loving God, even with these things being being potentially true. So that he actually meant what he said. Okay, so I also want to say that this is a really good question. I'm really glad someone asked it. And I really appreciate the asker having the wisdom to delineate between how we think about it as believers and about how and then how we talk about it with unbelievers. Because there's a lot of different things to consider and it's important that we acknowledge that. There's there's an answer I'm going to give us as as those who have trusted in Christ, tasted and seen that he is good, have believed fully in faith in, in, the, in the beauty of his gospel. There's one answer that, that for that crowd should be sufficient, uh, but I don't think it's unfaithful to also think some more so that we can talk to maybe friends and, and those that are seeking for truth about God, but are not maybe where we're at, aren't able to, in faith, just trust God's character when we don't understand exactly what he's doing, okay? Uh, So for those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, it should be sufficient for us to know that God only does what is right and just. The Bible's very clear about that. And that the real question here is why every one of us has not been wiped out for our sin. When, when somebody wants to come and accuse God of, of doing something less than moral for uh, sending his people to wipe out the Canaanites or the Amalekites, the, the real question is, <clears throat> why have all of us not been wiped out? Right? If we really understand the human condition, if we really understand the depth of our rebellion, uh, those of us who have trusted in Christ and have seen the good character of God how holy he is and how holy we aren't. Uh, a, a more fitting question is, why are any of us breathing and how could his mercy be that amazing? Amen? Okay, so that's, that's step one. But your agnostic or atheist friend at work is probably not going to come there with you. Let's just be honest, right? <laughs> they, they may not buy that. So <clears throat> how else can we talk about this to be helpful for them? And, and, and I think it's good for us to be able to authentically, because we really see it, be able to 
talk about how the character of our God is not tarnished uh, in, in these accounts. Uh, we need to be able to kind of think around this and, and understand it's easier for us coming from the belief that God is good, and he's proven that through Christ, uh, undeniably. But, uh, and I think it's okay for you to say that to somebody. The rest of what I'm going to give you, the things you can talk, you're going to talk about, I think it'd be helpful if, if, you're, if you're answering this question for someone. And, and I, I, made a, I made a point to say earlier that the rest of what we're going to talk about is going to be helpful if you're talking to somebody that's really seeking truth. You guys, you got to have wisdom about people that are, that are just... If they're, if they're not a person of peace, man, if, they're, if they have no real interest in the truth, they just want to tear down your God and tear down your faith. Uh, Jesus, you know, <laughs> the New Testament has another hard saying about not casting pearls before swine. And here's the reality. Some people are not ready to hear anything, and they're just, they're just trying to talk bad about your God and get you frustrated. And so if that's what's going on, much of what we're talking about is not going to be helpful. That's a person you pray for, move on. Ask God to either bring someone else to minister to them when they're ready or you know, let God know you'll be there and available when their hearts soften. But some people are just going to argue to argue, uh, and they're not really listening to what you're saying. They're just waiting until they can throw out something else. So we got to have some discernment right, about uh, where, this, where these things would be valuable. So, Okay, uh, we need to be willing to take what has been revealed through the Scriptures and through Jesus specifically, and reason with those that are genuinely seeking to understand God's character, because there are those people. And I'm praying that God is running those kind of people into you guys all the time, uh, and that you're ready to speak the truth of the gospel to them. So, uh, here's a few things that we can think about and talk through with those that are seeking truth about God, and to kind of help us take what we know about, and what we believe by faith about God's good character, and apply it to these really difficult. This is not a quick uh, varnish over, let's just skip that page type thing, right? That's not a faithful approach to the Bible, guys. We can't just ignore the fact that these accounts are there. In Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, God told his people to go wipe out other people and leave nothing breathing, including livestock. Now, those of you that might be more upset about the livestock than the women and children, all right, stop. All right, I decided to look the other way, just, you know, sometimes I want to make sure I don't make eye contact with people, but uh, hallelujah. Anyways, (laughs) they killed the animals? Yes, them too. So first of all, a few things we can think about uh, with those that are seeking truth about God. First of all, it was not genocide. What God commanded was not genocide. Genocide is based on ethnicity. This would be the Nazis Killing Jews. Why? Because they were Jews. This would be in Rwanda, one ethnic group killing 800,000 of another ethnic group. Why? Because they were that ethnic group. That's why the killing happened. This was not based on ethnicity. God does say wipe out the Amalekites. God does say wipe out the Canaanites. But it's not because they were Amalekites or because they were Canaanites. It's because they were wicked. Wicked. And had... I'll, get, I'll expand on this more later, but had ignored the commands of God and were doing detestable things. It was not their race. So those that jumped straight to, oh, God said kill the Canaanites, well, it's because they were Canaanites. Well, they didn't read the express purpose that is described in the Scriptures. 
And God even went so far as to make sure the Israelites didn't feel like they were superior to the Canaanites. He said, listen, I'm not having you drive them out because of your righteousness. It's because of their wickedness. God said, you're a stiff-necked people too. (laughs) So don't feel like you're better than them. I've got a purpose for you, and I promised that land to your forefathers, and they're in it, and they're wicked, and they they need to be destroyed. Not just because they're in our way. Lots of stuff, which we're going to get into. So, First of all, it was not genocide because genocide is based on ethnicity and none of what God commanded was based on that it was this certain people group. Very clear, okay? Uh, second thing, it, you know, and, and here, let's just say, let's just call a spade a spade. The hardest part about this, and I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be, a lot of us think like war, okay, it's cool that a bunch of dudes, full-grown guys, hit each other with swords and whatever happens, happens, right? We can kind of stomach that, but it gets real hard when it gets to, you know, whoever's left in the cities, the, the women, the children, everybody, nothing gets left that's breathing. That's, that's where we start to struggle. And rightly so, like we should. I, I, I don't think we're supposed to not, okay? But here's what we need to understand about the Canaanites and the Amalekites. These people groups, part of why, why was God's wrath coming upon them, okay? Because you could... <laughs> People that want to call God a, a maniacal, you know, genocidal murderer, they, they frame it as if God took the Israelites and just wiped out these poor, innocent people groups <clears throat> to make room for Israel. The Canaanites and Amalekites were not innocent. Now, first, we go back to the first thing we said and realize none of us are innocent, right? Israel wasn't innocent. You and I aren't innocent. We, we all deserve far worse than this, really, but... But even more than that, there was a reason the judgment of God was coming upon these people groups. Things like child sacrifice, which God really doesn't like, okay? Uh, there, are, there have been archaeological finds. Um, they've, they've found big temples filled with urns of children's ashes, and it, it verifies what, what the Bible says about it. Uh, in the worship of Baal and Molech, child sacrifice was very common. God was very ticked about that, Okay? Uh, there was grotesque perversion in uh, both of these cases. Uh, basically, they believed that the fertility of the land was tied to the fertility of the gods, and so they were constantly reenacting uh, sexual acts between the gods with each other, and that was you know, going to make the tomatoes big or whatever. So totally grotesque perversion, um, and many, many have cited that the, the whole reason the one of the possible reasons the animals get thrown in the mix is kind of like, well, God, why don't you just leave the livestock because Israel could, you know, have more livestock. Hallelujah. Uh, there's there's uh, scriptural reference and also external reference that it's probably very common. Pra- bestiality was a very common practice for these people groups, and so it follows that God's concern could have been, I mean, these animals are used to that kind of treatment, and there was all kinds of just, Really disgusting things happening. That's part of why God said, no, nah, we're going to wipe it all out. It's all been perverted. It's all gone so far that it, it, it's, it, it can't be redeemed, okay? They were worshiping false gods, and you might think, well, that other stuff sounds pretty bad, but worshiping false gods, but see, that, that's part of our problem. Like, the worship of false gods is, is an incredible offense to the one true, holy, perfect God that gave breath and life to all things, and so that really matters, and, and, and that counts. It's a problem. Okay, so they weren't innocent. There was a lot of real, nasty, bad stuff happening. Secondly, the Canaanites 
knew of God. Okay, when you go to the account of Rahab, uh, the spies come in and Rahab says, we've heard of your God, we've heard of you guys, and we melt at the thought of you coming. And so we, we don't know, ex- we do know they knew of God and what God was doing with Israel and to some degree what was happening, but they just continued in those sins, didn't care. Now, we don't have details uh, specifically in the scripture of how God revealed himself to the Canaanites, but it would be consistent with his character that he warned them and gave them chances to stop. Okay, the Bible doesn't tell us everything God ever did, but we see many times in the Bible God going outside of Israel and saying, stop or else judgment is coming. Can you think of any examples? I can think of one. Calls a guy named Jonah, right? To go to Nineveh. And what happens there? The Ninevites, and when Jonah comes and preaches the righteousness of God, everybody ends up in ashes and sackcloth, repenting for their sin. And what happens? God turns his wrath away. And so it is consistent with God's character to give people an opportunity to repent. Uh, And he's not just... He doesn't have an itchy trigger finger on, on the judgment cannon, right? Just looking to blast somebody. It's, it's likely it was hundreds of years of God warning these people groups. Uh, we see also with Daniel in, uh, in Babylon, right? Uh, God uses one of his to go into a whole other people group and warn them. And, and again, they turn. God stays his hand of judgment. So... Uh, The Canaanites were not unaware of the God of the Bible, and they had likely, in many ways, been warned. Neither Joshua or Saul, this is the next point, neither Joshua or Saul followed through, right? So Joshua didn't kill all the Canaanites, Saul didn't kill all the Amalekites. And what happened? What happened when they didn't fully walk out God's command? Israel suffered as a result. Later on, I mean, down... Down the line, Haman that tried to kill all the Jews was descendant from one of these groups, right? And, and, and that almost happened. If Esther wouldn't have stepped up, that would have been the end of the Jews right there. And so we, we, have to, we have to factor in God's foreknowledge into this thing. We have to understand that God is God and we are not. And so if you just look at that moment and you don't understand that God's looking at a timeline that's eternity long and he's, there's pieces that are moving all for this overall redemptive plan, he, that's how we can be confident when he's doing something. It's not a good idea for us to challenge him or question him or sit in the seat of judgment and wag our finger at him. He knows stuff we don't know. God knew about Haman, right, when he told Saul, don't leave any Amalekites alive because he knew what that was going to mean for his people. God, and, 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 and overall, what was God doing with Israel? What was the whole point of all that? See, if you, if you again, this is why we talk about this here all the time. If, if the Bible is just a fragmented bunch of stories, man, you can't connect the dots and you don't see God's overall character coming through in a positive light, even in the wiping out of the Canaanites and Amalekites. God was working on a plan. It's a plan that began to be revealed when he called this guy named Abraham to leave his home and to walk out in faith. And he gave him a son named Isaac. And then there was More sons and more sons and more sons. And there was 12. And then there was Joseph in Egypt. And then there was Moses in the Exodus. You see, God's been working a plan of redemption. That's how we got to a people, Israel, out in a wilderness and then coming into a promised land. What was all that about? Well, 
that was going to lead up then to the time of the kings, and that was going to then lead to the time of the prophets, and then, and then what happens? And then Jesus comes out of that whole thing. The whole thing was a setup. The whole thing was God working this redemptive plan that culminated in Christ coming to live a perfect life we couldn't, die the death we should have, to, so we could really see the radiance. I, man, what was God doing back there in, in Deuteronomy and Joshua? What, there's some weird stuff. What's happened? The book of Judges is wild. God, what was God doing? What was God doing? I'm going to tell you what God was doing. He was setting something up, something, he's, something he knew about before he ever even created us. The, 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 the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. God chose to make sinful humanity knowing that it would cost his son at the cross. Don't tell me he's not a good God. Don't tell me these things that, that were done along the way didn't have a purpose and weren't a part of the overall redemptive plan that leads to the possibility of anybody knowing God and loving God and being loved by him. The Jews had to make it. The Israelites had to make it. That, they had to keep going because it was out of that line that was going to come Jesus the Messiah. And that was the whole point. And these other, these other people groups around, they had the option to see how God dealt with Israel. They, that's, right? The Canaanites... Everybody knew about what happened in Egypt. You know that, right? It wasn't like nobody knew. Everybody around knew that the mightiest army around got played and ended up squashed in the Red Sea. They, this wasn't done under a rock. This wasn't done in a corner. Everybody knew. The people of Israel, they're not walking with some fake God that ain't around. That's, that's the real God. And and that's the thing, friend. A lot of times you're going to encounter people, they, they may even have some strong sense that God is real, but they're so blinded by pride or hurt or however it is Satan has, has kept them away from the truth about Jesus that they, they may even acknowledge God's existence, but they will not surrender to him. You, you'll encounter that. Hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can love them and help them uh, and teach them. Now, this, this idea that... that that God knew, right, what, what the Canaanites would do, what the Amalekites would do, what they would continue to do, I think is, is, is a powerful part of how we understand this and how we can talk about how really this seemingly very harsh judgment by God is, 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 is an act of love. I think it's pretty easy for us to see how it's an act of love for Israel. And, and to some degree, I hope you have comfort in that. If somebody stands in opposition to God and his people, and is determined to continue on that route, God will crush them. You can say amen to that. That's okay. God will crush them. But God also knew that if that, if that didn't happen, the Canaanites were going to continue to be trouble for Israel. The Amalekites were going to continue to be trouble for Israel. And they did, because neither of the men commanded to do that followed through all the way. And you might be thinking, well, hold on a second. You're saying God knew what they, what they would do and, and, and judged them based on that. No, they already had a bunch of sin and filth. They already had a bunch of warnings they ignored. But yes, I think part of the picture probably is that, <clears throat> I'm going to say this. I think, I think 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient, willing that none should perish. 
That's, that's the character of my God. And I also know that in the book of Ezekiel, it says that God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. See, that's part of the problem. Sometimes people see these, these accounts of, of God commanding these things in the Old Testament, and, and, and they, 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 it's like they see God as some bloodthirsty tyrant upon the throne. I believe God is weeping. That's his revealed character in his word. This is not something he takes joy in. And if those people could have been turned, if those people would have repented, I believe he would have granted them repentance. That, that's, that is consistent with his character. And you might say, oh, I, I don't know, I just can't come to terms with that. I just, I just want to say right now that I, I know one of the godliest women that I know that I've ever met in my life told me she used to pray this over her kids. And it shocked me at first, and then I thought about it, and I realized the only way you could pray this is if you have a real deal eternal perspective. And I think it's right. I believe it's right. Some of you won't like it, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how to help you other than pray for you, because um, I believe this is the way a, a Christian should think. She would pray over her kids and ask God that if her kids, when they were little, if they were not going to serve God when they were older, she asked God to take them now. I told you some of you wouldn't like it. I already knew that. Well, how could you? That's, that's, that's an eternal perspective, friend. That's understanding that this life is, is, is but a vapor and eternity's forever. And that's, that's setting aside what's best for you, what you may want. And that's, that's one of the most loving prayers I could think of a mother to pray for her kids. If they're not going to serve you when they're older, then take them now. And that's, I would, <clears throat> I would submit that to you. I think that's right and, and a holy prayer, a hard one. I think it's right. Uh, but I also think that in, in this, God may have been granting mercy to those children. Okay? And I want to talk about this just for a second. Uh, some traditions, denominations, however you want to call it, uh, have, they, they teach an age of accountability. They'll teach, you know, it's 12 or whatever. There's an arbitrary number. Uh, and there's different ways you could pull that out of the Bible. Ultimately, I don't believe there's an age of accountability. Every kid, when they hit 12, it's like, okay, you were good. Now you're not. I don't think that's how it works. Ultimately, I think every kid is different, and God is powerful enough to deal with each person on their, on their own merits and their ability to understand. But the Bible does give this idea, Romans 1.20 and other places, that people are going to be held accountable for what they're able to understand. And so... For me, and, and I know there's some in this church that, that aren't maybe at this place, uh, there's basically three positions on this idea. Like if, 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 if a young child uh, passes away, what do we believe about that? Okay, so you've basically got they're saved because they're an itty-bitty child and they can't be held accountable for things they couldn't even understand. Uh, in that bucket also would go like the mentally disabled. You've got a middle position, which is like, the Bible's not totally clear. We're just going to trust God's sovereignty on it. Uh, and on the other side is if they die before they can verbally confess Christ, they go to hell. There are those that believe that. To me, this far position's untenable. I, I, I can't believe that about my God. I'm not going to. Uh, you're not going to talk me into that one. I understand why people are in that middle one and... I, I sympathize with that, and I think it's, it's, it's biblically faithful. I'm just going to give you my personal opinion. I'm over here on the other side. I think little babies and mentally deficient folks that can't uh, be held accountable, according to Romans 120 and other texts, and if you don't like this, 
and I know some of you are nervous right now. I'm, I'm not alone in this. Some of, the, some of the really conservative theologians that you like are also in this camp. Right? It's like, he's off the rails. Oh, my God. He's a universalist. No, I promise. I'm not. You don't have to be a universalist to believe little babies that, that pass away go to heaven, okay? Um, you don't. So I believe there's enough in the scriptures the way David, this, you can't build a doctrine off how David talked about uh, the death of his son, but he said he got up, washed his face after mourning and said, you know, uh, he can't come back to me, but I'm going to go to him. You know, David, man after God's own heart, thought he'd be reunited with his son. And so th- there's, there's other things. I don't have time to build that whole case. Basically, my whole point is whether you're in that middle position of uh, we're not sure God's sovereign over the process of election, and so, you know, basically that's in his hands, what he does with little children, or if you're over here where I'm saying I'm at, either way, you could see that as potentially God's mercy as opposed to just continuing to let those kids be brought up in a culture that's all about, uh, you know, fertility sexual practices and worshiping false gods and demons and killing their children and to those demons, right? Like, God's, it, it can be merciful. And again, you're like, hold on, to kill them is merciful? I get that that's hard, but it's probably only hard because most of us don't have an eternal perspective for the most part. We are very much stuck in this plane of existence in the way we think about what's right and what's wrong. So, Honestly, I think it could be the same for the adults. If God knew that that adult was just going to keep sinning grotesquely against him for the rest of their life and just heap upon themselves further judgment, then if that's all that they were going to do and God knew that, then taking them out is merciful. If all they were going to do was continue to disobey God. I don't know if you could pray this for yourself. I, I'm real serious about this. If, if God knew in two weeks I was going to lose my mind and leave my family and go be some vagabond sinner and, and, and shame the name of Christ, I would much prefer he take me out. I don't know if you can pray that way or not or think that way. And, and you're talking about God's foreknowledge, and I realize that's kind of a mind bender, but listen, guys, he knows. <laughs> he knows it all. Amen. Um. We got to remember that, that everything that happened here was part of an overall larger plan of redemption. I kind of said that earlier. Israel had to survive so that Jesus could come on the scene, right? And so if, if the Canaanites were going to try to kill all the Israelites or the Amalekites were going to try to kill all the Israelites, God's chosen people, they had, they had to go down. And, and whether you're okay with that or not, I realize this is not just theory. These are real people. And if you let yourself emotionally connect to that, that that makes this difficult. It should be. I'm scared for you if you, don't, if you don't cringe at all at these verses. If there's nothing in you that's like, oh, man, wipe them all out. If you're like, yeah, wish I could have been there. You're not thinking. You're not really thinking about the reality of what's being said here. Because I could probably go get a bunny rabbit out of my yard and give you a sword, and you probably couldn't kill that. You know, start remembering Bambi and stuff. Get all weepy. I'm just saying, something in you should should be bothered by this, but I'm asking you not to doubt God when, when that happens, to think through what it is he's doing in a larger context. And this is not, ultimately, everything I've said, everything I've said 
does not make this a, a, a pretty whitewashed situation with a bow on it. This is still real messy and ultimately ends with this statement. God is God and we are not. And sometimes he does stuff that you're not going to understand. I do feel very confident in this, saying this statement. If there was really a better way, God would have done it that way. Because God always does it the best way. You guys okay with that? If there was a better way, he would have took it. God's love and his wrath are not mutually exclusive. He is wrathful against sin because he hates that which hurts what he loves. Do you understand that God's wrath and God's love, we, we oftentimes, <laughs> there's folks in the church that really like God's wrath. Burn them all, right? Like everybody's kindling and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like, chill out, man. And then you've got people on the other end that, that have to try to explain all this stuff away and they, they can't, they can't possibly reconcile a God of wrath with a God of love. To me, man, it, it makes total sense, guys. I saw a video on the internet the other day. It was like some, uh, some girl was punching this kid in the face over and over again, and the caption was like, if this was your son, what would you want him to do? And uh, I think the kid did the right thing. He just tried to kind of block and shuck and move. But overall, like, the, the thought of that is um, if, <laughs> if that boy's mother was there, you know, <laughs> that, that girl probably would have got snatched up. And, and that, I would be glad about that. If the mother could just sit there and go, ha, ha, look at my son getting punched in the face. Um, let, uh, let me make it a little more real. I hesitate to do this, but I think it's needed. And, and again, some of you aren't going to like this. That's, and that's okay. We need to think about it. Uh, man, this, 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 atrocious tragedy that just happened recently where 17 people lost their lives. Here's, here's what I want to know from you. If that kid had shot five people and, you're, and, and you're, you come around the corner and you have the means to stop him from shooting the rest, do you take him out? Do you kill him to stop the rest from dying? Maybe you're not sure if you could do that, just from a personality standpoint. I don't know what I would do, whatever else, whatever else. Here's what I'm saying. God did. Because the Amalekites and the Canaanites were just going to keep going. They were just going to keep killing, attacking, trying to pull his people away from him, deceive, pillage, kill their own kids, be terrible. God did what was necessary. And he, you know, it might be hard for us to put ourselves in that position, and it should be because we're not perfect. So it's like, well, who, who am I to make a judgment that big, to make a decision that big? And, and I hope you have that hesitation and you're thinking about it. But we, we can't put our limitations onto God. God is holy and perfect. And if he makes a decision, it's the right one. I'm going to read you another verse. I referenced it earlier. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I've said a lot. Some of it's been really hard to swallow. But I want to come back to what has been revealed through Christ about the character of our God. 
God is not a monster. He is not the monster that so many who ignore the whole story of the Bible claim him to be. He's patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? To think that God has ever enjoyed any result of sin is a misunderstanding of his character. God weeps and mourns to a degree you'll never understand over every single effect of sin. Overall, for you to be able to trust and believe in the good character of God is, is in a real important way of how we approach these questions. Because even if you can't remember the details, even if you aren't able to walk somebody through everything we walk through tonight, friend, if you believe, if you believe he's a good God, if you can speak out of your own testimony and with conviction about the goodness of God, if you can talk about how merciful, patient, long-suffering he's been with you. Friends, if people want to start at, hey, let's, let's try to understand what God was doing with the Canaanites and the Amalekites, can I, can I teach you something about how to share Christ with people? We can't start there. we got to pick them up and take them over and ask them to look at Jesus and ask first, what are you going to do with him? Are you, what, what do you think about him? What's going on with the fact that the Son of God came, lived a perfect life, died in your place, and then rose from the grave? What do you think about that? Because you can't understand that over there unless you're thinking right about this right here. The gospel are the lenses with which every difficult passage in the scriptures begins to have some semblance of making sense. And, and, and the eradication of the Canaanites and the Amalekites, it doesn't make any sense unless God is working this plan of redemption, this ark from Abraham to Jesus to us to the future promise of glory with him forever. We gotta take him to Jesus, friends. That's the only hope. That's the only way any of this makes sense. May we be a people who obey the law of Christ to love God and love people. And may we acknowledge that God loved us first. And all he does, whether we understand it or not, is good and right and just and loving. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank you for this question. I thank you, God, for the fact that your Bible is, is not whitewashed. Uh, Lord, one of the evidences that it is your word is if somebody was trying to create a religion, they would have cleaned some of this stuff up. They would have made it easier, more palatable. There's some very difficult things that are hard to understand. Lord, help us. Please keep us uh, in the conviction that first we have to understand what you are doing in Christ, that when you called Abraham by faith, it was the beginning of a redemptive plan that finds its fullness and its culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Lord, I ask that you would cultivate in us a deep trust in your good character that 
when people raise these questions that what's happening in our hearts is not this, this feeling of fear or anxiety, that maybe they're right, maybe God is a monster, may there be no chance for your people that have tasted and seen that you are good, that have experienced your long-suffering patience, that have come to understand, that have, have walked with you and seen that your desire is for all to come to repentance. Lord, may we have no question about your good character. I ask you to equip us, help us to think and to understand all these things through the lens of your gospel and your loving good character. Lord, please help us, anoint us, equip us by the power of your spirit to explain this to those that are seeking truth. Maybe they've heard somebody say that you're a genocidal uh, maniac, that you're some prideful being that demands worship, and maybe they've stayed away from you because of that. But Lord, it's because they haven't, they haven't seen the light of your glory. They haven't tasted the sweetness of your presence. Lord, help us. Help us to share the truth with them. Help us, please, to believe it ourselves and have the boldness and the faith to share it with others. I thank you that your word is true. Every word of it, even the hard parts. We submit to it. We rejoice in it. And Lord, I just want to thank you. I thank you that you hate sin. I am thankful that you are wrathful against sin. I thank you that you're not some indifferent parent that doesn't care, but you are a good, attentive father. And that absolutely everything that would harm your children angers you, and that you are wrathful towards it. Even when it's us causing it. Thank you that you chastise and deal with the children that you love. Thank you, Lord, that your love and your wrath aren't in competition. They're not exclusive from each other, but they absolutely work together. Thank you that you care. We love you, Lord, and we worship you, and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.